Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bazaar plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. There's a lot to like in this story. It's getting more ridiculous as it goes on. The hunt for the weirdest. What are you talking about? Are you serious? What? So many questions. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you here. <laughs> Strangers. This is a masterpiece of stupidity. It's going to get stranger and stranger. I'm quite exhausted. Most unbelievable. If you wrote this as a movie, people wouldn't believe Stories it. Stories to ever occur. An epic tale of woe, joy, nutty behaviour. The fact that it's not more well known is just the strangest. Thing. In the world of sport. This is going to get juicy here, isn't it? We should open a window or something. <laughs> Spots bizarre. How many testicles did he have? Eight. Found <laughs> running naked down a major street in Chicago. <laughs> this, of course, is the last time organised crime and boxing of Crossdove. Got up in a press conference. We're here to announce we've swapped our wives. What is going on? It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Not household names for me. Surely a red flag. It's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with Titus O'Reilly, of course, who's bringing it to the table. How are you, Titus? I'm very well, Mick. And my good self, Mick Malloy. Let's get straight into it. What have you brought to the table this time? We're going to delve deep into a guy called John Wren. It's not ringing a bell for me. It's not a household name. Well, it is in Melbourne, Australia. One of the most amazing kind of guys that came out of the gambling explosion and racing, but he was into boxing, he was into everything. He was a promoter and a businessman. (laughs) Sounds like an upfront business. (laughs) Well, it kind of was. Yeah. What's interesting about this for people who are listening overseas is at the moment in the United States, gambling after being pretty much banned on sport for a long time has in recent years become legal after a Supreme Court over in America ruled that the states, it was up to them whether they wanted to legalised sports betting, which, of course, they all did because there's a lot of money in it. It was not you a know, surprise. And the Supreme Court of America, that seems to be all they do these days. Nah, working out at state level. Well, state Aren't they supposed to be the most powerful court in the world? Well, it's just the Civil War never really ended. Oh, it's just it been, never did. We're getting, we're getting very off topic, but it's true. Before it all exploded there, it exploded here in Australia. But if you go back a bit further, this battle over the regulation of Betting on sports yeah. has been a huge thing forever. And to understand it, you kind of have to go back. We're like all things where the trouble starts. It starts in France. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what the hell? How did the French get involved? Well, the, there would always been this thing where when you bet, you either went into a pool and it was like a sweepstake. So you all yes. put your money in and then you randomly drew a horse and that's how you won. Is that the only method of betting? Well, that was one way. And the other way you, you would bet with a bookie. A legal bookie? Often illegal or legal. So it was just an individual bookie. And the difference there is the bookie would give you various odds and then the bookie would hope your horse lost and whoever they were giving the odds right. to would win. That's how they made money, which meant they could go broke because they were betting their own money against yours. So this guy called Joseph Oller, in 1867, he came up with a new system of betting, which was called paramutual betting or it's often known as the tote, okay. which many Australians would have heard sure. of. And it's a very simple idea, and like all simple ideas, it then leads to enormously complex <laughs> problems. A bit like someone saying we should go for a drink. You know, yeah. it's, it seems simple. Three days later. Three days later, it's impossible. Now, what it basically means is wagering among ourselves. They all chose a horse to bet. They all put their money in, and they were betting against the other people betting. So the right. odds would go 
a bit like almost like a stock market. The more people were backing a horse, the odds would get higher and lower, which is what happens today mainly. And then the person running that would just take 10% out of the pool. So, so they didn't care. Who bet on what? Who bet on what? Taking a tariff. So suddenly the clubs or the people running it's like these, a casino basically. Yeah, they it? were you like, just... we take 10%. The more you gamble, the better. But go we for your lives. Yeah, go for your lives. But we can't go broke because we get 10% no matter what happened. Is it being run by the government or private? It can be gambling? run privately. It can be run by the government and all this. But it was a new system that was seen as fairer, more transparent. The bookies weren't doing dodgy deals with the odds. It was just the odds were purely. Can't leave the track immediately after the eighth you, race. They don't run and off. Leave you high and dry. When a bookie's betting, they want to win against you. So they're hoping the popular horses don't win. So that leads to a lot of them wanting to. And they to, have ways of making that making happen. making that happen. Yeah. We're with betting on the tote, because the person taking the bets gets 10% cut no matter who wins, that didn't happen. So it's seen as a fairer, more transparent, more honest way. So naturally, when this happens in France, it just takes off. It just goes right. absolutely nuts. What they used to have to do is update in real time the odds because the more people bet, the lower the payout gets because right. there's heaps of people basically owning that horse in the pool right. so more payouts have to happen. So if you bet on a horse that no one else is interested in, the odds tend to be higher that instead of just a normal a bookie sets it. So in real time they were updating the tote board all the time, Jeez. the details. You have to get the overhead projector out it was like and that talk was... me through this. <laughs> Quick one, in Dubai, is it true you can't gamble or drink at the racetrack? Well, I know you can't drink in Dubai. Well, you can't know. drink, and I don't think it's, you're allowed to gamble. Who is going to that racetrack? <laughs> in the South Australia in the 1870s, they passed a law banning gambling on horse racing, and you'll never guess what happened. Horse racing died overnight. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly the Adelaide Cup yeah. moved to Melbourne because wow. no one was going to it. And in, within about a three-week period, the government backflipped and said, oh, okay, you can't do it. By the way, you should not be charged for going into a racetrack anywhere in the world, don't you think? You're going to give them because your money. Because you're going to gamble you're anyway. You're going to give them your money. Isn't yeah, exactly. It, it's obscene. Well, they just hit you every way, right? Your mate that says he won a lot of money on the races, here's yeah. a spoiler alert, they didn't. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> all I've come to learn. So Joseph Oliver kicks this off in Italy and it, straight away betting on races in France and England, it becomes huge overnight, yeah. almost overnight. So to the point that within a couple of years, by 1873, he's turning over 5 million francs annually. So huge amounts a lot of, of money. Francs. Bookies hate him. I'm surprised he survived this, exactly. this grab for their territory. He's taking all the money because punters like betting on the tote because it's seen as fair and, they don't, uh, and they're guaranteed they'll get their money. The bookies tend to run off with the money sometimes. Right. They're going to come around and hit you in the knee with that's an iron right. bar. They start to suggest that it's an illegal system of gambling. The bookies? The bookies do. He starts <laughs> to say, well, I'll give a cut to the government. So they get a turnover to sort of legitimise himself, which is the system that has come in play everywhere else around the world now. But yeah. at the time he got in a bit of trouble. He actually got sent to 18 days in prison for it all. He got vindicated because the government decided once the bookies had complained a lot that the French government decided they hated the bookies more <laughs> and got him back to yeah. run the whole gambling system go. for France, right? To the point where in 1908, 294 million francs are being put through this a year. He benefits by not only running it, he also sets up a printing business to print the racing tickets and makes so much money, all the money <laughs> he made. to print money. Yeah. He goes into the entertainment industry and sets up a new theatre restaurant 
called the Moulin Rouge. Oh my God. Which not the one we know. The as one we Moulin know. Rouge the today. one that famous can can. I've been there. It was so much Funded fun. by gambling money. Oh my God. <laughs> so there's this. Montmartre. It's, it's a very dubious place. It, was, it still is. It, or still, it was. Well, it was. When you were there, it was. When I was been. there. Even I brought the tone down. What was it like? Oh, it was great. Because that's the can-can, it's the Hiking, dancing, oh, yeah. it's all the uh, bars with artists sitting around going bonkers. Yeah. That said, don't go see the movie. No, no, Not a fan no. of the movie, Moulin Rouge. Which One reviewer me. described as like spending two hours in a lift with a circus. <laughs> He leaves nothing in the locker room when he makes those films. He's not subtle. Not You're going to die wondering with a Baz Luhrmann <laughs> yeah. film. I know a girl who danced at the Moulin Rouge. Oh, this is the least surprising thing you've ever told me. <laughs> Seriously. Actually, the only surprising thing is you only know one. <laughs> Did you know her before you went? No, no. This is a current. You like, know her now. I know her right well, now. Well, Mick will be giving out her phone number after this. So this system of betting, the mm. tote, it arrives in Australia so much faster, faster than germ theory did in Australia. Yes. They were more interested in it <laughs> what the French had come up with. And the Australians were always just the biggest gamblers. They still are to this day the biggest gamblers in the world. Yeah. They lose more per capita. Well done, Australia. Than anyone else. I think Singapore's second and, and it just drops away after them. Oh. Pokies, racing, sports betting. Good on yeah, well done. Huge. They always say Australians will gamble up. Two, two flies flyers. going up a wall, and it's true. So the Australians find this, and they look at Ollis and they go, this is great, We're, this will suit us. But they decide instead of just having the chalkboards, they build machines, almost like these mechanical scoreboards yes. that can in real time keep up with, with the odds, showing yeah. the odds as people put bets on. And so it becomes this huge thing to the point where Australia started designing mechanical totes that were so powerful. This is before computers existed <laughs> that they could calculate faster than modern-day computers. Some oh, of wow. Them. And the first was like this for about 100 years. The biggest ever international trade deal ever done by Australia was selling tote machines to France <laughs> for years, right? So it was our biggest industry. We're good at it. We're very good at Do it. I always admire too, you know, we're some of the smartest men in the world are those who can convert odds on the spot or tell me that, that they're, they're not yeah. CEOs, they haven't been to uni, some of them didn't go past year eight or nine at school. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I watched them stand in front of a board or read a card with all the different odds on it and let you know how much you're going to get for a box trifecta on this or that. And I yeah. go, you are like Stephen Hawking, yeah. but in gambling world. And it's always the guy that, at year, in year 10 you did maths with and he could not do maths and you yeah. run into him five years later <laughs> and it just shows you the power of incentives. Yeah. He's gotten a racing yeah. Yeah. and he's doing exactly what you're saying. It's like a Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind, you know. <laughs> you're sitting there just going, yeah. you were the dumbest bloke I know but suddenly but all of a sudden you could run a Fortune 500 company in two seconds. So Australians get right behind this. They start building these mechanical tote boards. They start looking at large fonts so it looks all very yeah. computery and scientific. And they were about the size of a piano, these tote machines right. that could be moved around and taken everywhere and they were taken to all of this. And then in the background you had all these clerks counting the bets in real time. How many of these totes? Oh, it could be hundreds of the people doing the, the clerks doing the stuff, the maths in the background. They spread everywhere. And who makes them? It would just be entrepreneurs. So in the 1870s and early 80s, there were entrepreneurs who started these tote betting companies. Yes. So you had the normal bookies on course, but they started these tote betting companies. They started pouring huge amounts of advertising money into the papers. For example, in Melbourne, a man appropriately named Henry Gamble 
Wow. He man. launches. His future was sorted <laughs> early in the piece, was, wasn't it? He launches Gamble's Totalizer Company. Okay. So this is the Totalizer machine, which totals all the bets up. It built on his other businesses, which included Gamble's Celebrated Cough Lozenges <laughs> and his Gamble's Safe Hair Vigor. Oh, my God. Now, if you have to put safe in the title, <laughs> that suggests there was some unsafe ones. This sounds around. dodgy. This guy is dabbling in the dark arts That's right. of the Australian community. So all this money starts coming into these private companies setting up these totalizer companies, this new way. Have they got like a production line or something? No, a lot of it's been made in like back sheds and stuff like people's backyard sheds and stuff, right? Some of the big businesses that go on to be huge are these totalizer companies of people just building them themselves. This starts to get successful enough that the big racing clubs like in Britain, in Australia too, they're run by the gentrified class. So they're the captains of industry, the 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 minor nobility, all this. They okay. run the racing clubs. And the idea is with the racing clubs is you have these bookies on course and you take a cut from them, but it's hard to regulate it because it's just cash in hand and you'd be surprised that bookies don't always report. You take that full. back. You take that back. <laughs> I won't hear it. They sometimes don't. So the bookies were known for being dodgy. So this idea of having a, a setup company, a totalizer company, it appealed to these big racing yeah. clubs because there's stories. Of, there's a great one of a bookie in Sydney. He took bets all day, and what would happen is people would look around and they'd look at bookies, and they knew they could run off. So <laughs> they would look for the fattest bookie. <laughs> I'm kidding you not, right? They would look. For we the, can catch that one. We can catch him. We can Seriously. Catch that like, one. So they would look at him and go, I reckon I could outrun this. And that was genuinely how they would tip who to bet with. One bookie taking advantage of this shows up one day with his whole leg in plaster casts, right? Takes bets all day. And then on the last, he took these bets and the favorite got up and he was going to lose it all. It and the fans are celebrating this winner, the favorite. They turn around, he's ripped off the plaster class and he's, and he's bolting. bolting up the hill, oh, never to be called. So the idea of this system, this fair way of betting where the person running it, whether it's a person or a company, has no incentive because they're just taking 10% off the top no matter what is highly appealing to these big racing clubs. Okay. So they say, we want in. They go to the government and say, we want to run the totes. So in various places around Australia, the governments come in and say, okay, we'll legalise this. So Queensland do, Adelaide do, various other places in Australia do. New South Wales and Melbourne are a bit less sure because really? the anti-gambling groups look at this and go, this is making gambling sort of more trustworthy, easier to bet, safer Accessible. than the bookies. Yeah, because people were not going to the bookies because they were dodgy. So the idea yeah. of having this reputable thing and run by the actual clubs, the actual racing clubs, this terrifies the right. – and, and it's mainly the Protestant churches that are running <laughs> these anti-gambling things. They're sure. very much against it. This becomes incredibly controversial in the state of Victoria and Australia where in 1880 they bring in the Victorian Totalizer Bill that allowed them to do this by a guy called David Gaunson who was um, the Member of Parliament. And this is defeated as the anti-gambling people all come in and say, this is terrible. This opens up the door for our friend John Wren. Oh. The totalizer system is banned in Victoria. It's illegal. The big major clubs like the Victorian Racing Club cannot run it. Yeah. So John Wren's the third son of Irish immigrants. He's born in 1871 in Collingwood. People would know it now. There's a famous football club in Australia called the Collingwood Football Club. Yes. Arguably the most famous club in the land. But Collingwood at the time when Wren was built there, it is true working class 
suburb Absolutely. in the poorest sense. So it was. It's like still in a depressed economy. If you it was like the epitome of hardworking and and rough poverty. and unemployed and Irish immigrants, very Catholic. Nothing's changed, if you ask me. But <laughs> it's gentrified slightly, but the ruling class in Melbourne at the time were the Protestants, and the Catholics were very much told you are subspecies to yeah. us. So Wren grows up in this area. It's a famous little area, and I've I've drunk at most of these pubs, which <laughs> I haven't changed a whole. There's heap one on. Since. There's a pub on every corner. If you yeah. can go there now, yeah, yeah, and they haven't. They've they've been there since then. It's not an easy upbringing. He leaves school at twelve to work in all these low-level jobs like a wood yard and shoe manufacturing. So he's 12 years old working in these places. It's an absolute slum and he is really achieving not much, a lot of criminal elements around him, all this sort of stuff. And he appears to not going to amount to too much, much, right? Yeah. He's just another casualty of the yeah, Collingwood region. Uh, Collingwood region. So in 1890, a horse called Carbine wins the Melbourne Cup and Wren, and this is where the legend starts, Wren bets big on this horse. He saves up all the money he does have. He's unemployed at the time and it's a depression. Goes all in. And it's a depression in, in 1890s in Australia. He goes all in and he wins 180 pounds. Right, had, give us a sense of what that is. Oh, that's a couple of grand these days, you know, mm. it's quite a few grand, yeah. so thousands of dollars. So. Yeah. He uses this as a stake to start betting, to become a bookie. Has this been an ambition of his for I think it's, he's got no job, no prospects. He's a Catholic working-class guy who no one wants to hire. There's no jobs around and he's got some money. So he thinks – and he likes gambling. So he says, I'll start taking some things. In 1893, just after the totaliser bill has been shot down and is illegal, he decides that what he will do is open a tote – in Collingwood. So he gets this right. rundown shop front that no one is using and he starts taking money through a totalizer. So the working class poor of Collingwood can come in and place their bets with him. The system he's using is I take a cut, yeah, right. but you can gotcha. trust me, I'm not a bookie like normal, I'm taking this money. And it becomes one of the biggest things ever because the rich could bet at private clubs, there are private clubs in places they could go bet or they could go to the racetrack, but the poor can't aren't allowed into yeah. the rich clubs and then the cost of transport, a stagecoach yeah. or something like that to get to the racetrack and then pay for entry, they can't afford even that. So they want to gamble but they can't and suddenly in their own suburb there's this tote. So they all start going to yep. the point where within a year of setting up he's turning over £20,000 per annum oh, which wow. in the day is like it's millions of dollars. It's just a license to print money. There you go. So Wren's got this amazing things. Government suddenly pay attention because here's this guy illegally running a tote. They've what said, gives him away? How do they know? Well, just word spreads word because spreads. he's so popular and he's got money coming in. Like he, Is he more, flaunting it? Is he keeping it under the he, radar? He, he, he's very smart. He reinvested it. He buys better homes and stuff like that, but he's reinvesting into businesses. We'll get into some of that, but he's, he's using it in a very clever way. But it's just it's like turning on a fire hose of money. He <laughs> just he just has more money than he knows what to do with. Now, what really happens is the racing clubs are furious because they've been told they are not allowed to run a tote. And, and because they're from, all law abiding this Catholic from Collingwood. From Collingwood <laughs> is running one illegally. They can't run it illegally because they're too respected yeah. and too regulated by government. Yeah, so they're not getting any money. And Ren is bringing in so much money, it's affecting their gambling revenue. 
<laughs> so they go to the government, you've got to shut this guy down. This is ridiculous. Yeah. How hard is it to shut him down? Well, it turns out to be almost impossible. <laughs> so I like this guy. Tell me he turns out to be a good guy. Well, he's an interesting guy in many ways. They start raiding him time and time again, the police. They just, they're told by the government, you have to shut this down. So they raid him. The, problem the is police they, aren't in on it? They're, they're not getting a cut? No, they're not getting a cut because the police and the Collingwood suburb do not get along. It is like the Americans going into Fallujah, <laughs> right? Seriously, like no one talks to coppers, no one wants them to be there. But I'm aware of two up games in Richmond and Carlton yeah. during the Second World War or round about that time yeah. where police would raid the two up game, put them all in jail, yeah. where the two-up game would continue, but with a cut going oh, to yeah, the yeah. police. So later on when gambling... They've got an eye for this. Yeah, the starting price, the SP bookies that develop, and we might do an episode on these guys later on, yeah. which is sort of like what the bootleggers were in America yes. during Prohibition who spring up in Australia and run the illegal gambling later yes. on. They are all paying off the police. But this is before even there's really got into that system. The police are very much working for the upper class. Right. And Protestants and the Catholic working class Collingwood folks have nothing to do with the police <laughs> and don't help them in any way. Right. They start to raid them and every time they raid them, going into this suburb, people just tip off the police are coming. They're coming. They've got a cockatoo. They, they call them cocky too. Yeah, yeah cockies. Yeah. And yeah. So they've got all these people watching and on the <laughs> payroll and the minute the police enter the suburb, which they have to do in force yeah. sometimes, by the time they make it all the way into the, where the tote is in the shop front, they raid it. It's literally empty. Uh, now it's a haberdashery shop. <laughs> That's right. Sure. What, what's up, officer? Can I help? <laughs> so they raid it and they just keep finding it empty. So they get a bit more interested in how we're going to do this. And there's several reasons why I can't show them. The first is just how anti-police the suburb is. Yes. So they don't have anyone helping. The second one is the law is not helping them. So you, they have to find evidence there on premises and one of the problems is the defining law is very much like what is a gambling premise so what they do is the minute they hear the police are coming they just throw all the evidence into the houses <laughs> next door to the tote which they don't have warrants to search this is gold. so they just the police can tell what they're doing but, but they, they can't do under about. the law they're hamstrung in the winter of 1893 the police decide to really ratchet this up they are getting desperate and they've raided it like Dozens of times already, yeah. So they decide that they're going to do it and they raid it three times and each time is weirder than the others. They raid by approaching on four-wheeler horse cabs. Police didn't have their own vehicles back then (laughs) and used to catch cabs to murder scenes. Oh, my God. So it's it's not a normal police force yet. It's It's a proper police force, but it's not like there are now where they have their own you know, cars, horses were expensive. <laughs> catch a cab. They would get catch these wagon cabs. They'd pile the police in. They would move incredibly slowly. Imagine a cab driver going the long way <laughs> to a murder scene <laughs> just to bilk them for a few more they, bucks. There was no Uber. <laughs> so they all jump in. These lumbering cabs full of like burly oh, men, wow. sometimes dressed not in police uniform, would come in. By the time they arrived, you know, it was all done. It was all over. It was all over. So this was happening all the time. There was no – the horses would be straining because there were so many cops in the back. So it was the, the, like, And the Collingwood locals would just laugh as they went past. Look like, out. It was great entertainment for them. Here come the cabs. So these all become – they do this three times – 
each time by the time they show up, no one there. And it's just dispiriting. Like, and the government of the day are yelling at the police going, what are you doing? You've the top end of town's it upset. Yeah, the Protestants upset. are going bonkers. On the eve of the 1893 Melbourne Cup, which is the big race in Australia and one of the big oh, races a, internationally. It's in the world now. It is. It was still pretty big at this stage. And these times, they, after this, they wait until the eve of the 1893 Melbourne Cup to try again. And this time there's an Inspector Connolly and he gave up on the cabs. He went... I think we've got to give up on catching a cab. We are going to march to the tote in two groups, one from the north and one from the west and meet up. That's going to take longer. Well, no, because the the horses are so slow, right? (laughs) So we'll march, right? And we'll come from there. Now, amazingly, and maybe it was because it was Cup Eve and everyone was drinking, system of warning spies break down somewhere and they get to the tote and they find 55 punters in there and a list of horse and other documentary evidence of betting. Okay. John Wren wasn't there and he never was. He just never went there. Sure. But he got fined 50 pounds all the same I'll because his him. name was on it. He then <laughs> changed the name to someone else pretty quickly <laughs> after this. Yeah. Um, but that didn't stop. They just opened the next day. Well, of course they like, did. Like nothing. Got a 50 pound fine. Yeah, and it's the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> so they're like, we'll just open the next day. So they opened the next day but this time they begin to heavily fortify the shop. Okay. So they, it's an arms race between the defenders of the tote and those the police right. trying to get in. So that the brown shop on it's on Johnson Street. It suddenly got heavy timbers, iron struts, barbed wire, trap doors <laughs> leading into other properties. This um, is incredible. Uh, new entrances. So there's multiple right. entrances. And it, they set up more formal advance outposts to spot approaching policemen so that they can't get caught. Yeah. So this sends a shock through them. Also, they decide that punters no longer will enter through the shop front but through several buildings away through a series of connecting doors oh, this is from a wood and, and then go through a wood yard between the shop so that <laughs> it doesn't look like those people just going in the front door this all the time. Brilliant. This is where they start throwing things in the fences over the thing and the police are under enormous pressure once again. So they have the idea of hiring a squad of officers and they hire a hay cart <laughs> and bury the police in the hay in cart. In the hay cart. Okay, now they're undercover. Yeah, so now they are officially <laughs> in the back of a hay cart covered in hay. Yeah, literally undercover. They're one cigarette away from total disaster, <laughs> from annihilation. So the cart lumbers along <laughs> the streets, and they, no one can see there's police in and it. And it's not no alarm bells are ringing. No, well, not really, but they they lumber along. And they reach the back of the tote, and then to the amusement of those watching on, they then take quite a bit of time extracting them from the hay because hay's quite heavy. <laughs> and then they spend time finding in the hay the axes and crowbars and battering rams they've Which they brought, brought with them because to get in. And this takes so long, by the time they get in, there's no one in there. So even this doesn't work. The cops aren't really impressing me. No. With their Meanwhile, foresight, their energy. No, they're not doing well. No, and not. then on top of this, this is making Ren this folk hero. So Ren starts in Collingwood. He he's letting people bet when, and they think that the fact they're not allowed to bet is one rule for the rich, one rule yeah. for the poor. So they're so betting they say, as a matter of pride and principle. Uh, yeah, and the fact that they we're just doing what the rich people are allowed to do. Yeah. And the life's up against us, and they won't even let us have this. Yeah. So Ren is a hero, but then, like all these heroes, because he keeps making the police looks and the government look stupid. Mm. They just love him, right? He's just one of the most popular. He starts pouring all his money into boxing rings and boxing competitions. Um, he starts running all these other cycling races. 
So he starts putting into legitimate sports yeah. as well. And sports. He builds Festival Hall, which is a famous. Oh, that's a landmark. Landmark. Still exists today in Melbourne. Yeah. Bands play there all the time. Oh. It was the mecca of boxing. Saw the Sex Pistols there. Yeah. I did. I saw REM there. Yeah, I seen Radiohead there. And uh, unbelievable. So everyone plays there. He would be appalled. It's owned by some Christian fellowship today. Yes, who it has got sold by his family to the yeah, to this Christian fellowship group or one of the Pentecostal churches. Yeah. We should it, send the cops down there. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should get a hay cart and send the cops down to yeah, Festival so, Hall. Uh, in, a, in a way, the, the churches win eventually. <laughs> it just took takes they them got about there. 80 years later. Can I ask, yeah. he's not involved in any other underworld criminal activity. We'll get activity. into some of this because there's people that believe he was, but there's others that think that a lot of that was just dumped on him by yeah. the Protestant forces and that to who, who dirty him up. I mean, there's him. no doubt running the tote is illegal, and I'm sure he had people working for him who He'd knew how to henchmen ha, who knew to handle things. He knew right? some heavies. Yeah, he's up against the bookies and the government, and so it's unlikely that he was completely a clean skin. Yeah. He becomes this hero to the working class, but then he becomes an even bigger and greater symbol of the evilness of gambling to the anti-gambling. That are tied up with the churches and tied up with the Protestant ruling class. They start to see him as the devil personified where, you know, before that there wasn't someone to focus their dislike on. So the police decide we've got to do more and we've got to do more. We want you to try and close the loop in parliament around adjoining property so that we can search them too. So while they're trying to get that through, they decide we're going to launch another attack on the eve of the Australian Cup in February and this was just going to be a brute force attack. Right. So they weren't going to... No All hay, hands on deck. Yeah, no hay bales. We're just turning up. We're, we're just turning we're up with everything. They turn up and they've got axes and they're hacking at the hardwood fences, but it's so well now fortified. fortified that it's taking so long that while they're trying to do this, everyone inside the tote had left the tote and was standing outside cheering <laughs> on the police. <laughs> So You're doing a good job, fellas. Yeah, so Keep it going. They're literally doing it. Which you is missed very, a bit. Yeah. They're just going, come on, faster. Go, go. You can get knowing it's empty and they were the ones that were just inside. I mean, they're having a ball. Like this they are great. having the greatest time. On another attempt a week later, uh, the week of the Caulfield Cup happened again and it was so bad. And the Argus newspaper at the time, one of the papers in Melbourne at the time wrote, the Crown Law Department has utterly failed to cope with the ingenuity of the proprietor whose identity is not able to establish. Nobody is ever found in the place. Wow. So Ren isn't on the paper of who owns it. They can't. He's like Batman. Yeah, he's just like, they cannot catch him. He's just running amok with them. The anti-gambling people in Parliament, they're trying to change this law so you can go to the houses. And Victoria's Attorney General, Isaac Isaacs, who becomes the first Australian-born Governor-General later on, he brings in a bill directly aimed at Ren's tote which was to define the place to include you could search the houses around it. He'll just buy those, wouldn't he? Well, this is the thing, right? But anyway, <laughs> it gets shut down because the racing clubs now go, hang on, that could mean that could be used against our uh, Flemington and okay. the big race courses in Melbourne. We don't want that. So that gets shot down. So Wren, because they're all fighting their own interests, Wren's just playing them all in off the against each other just perfectly. And it's got to the point where in 1903 police decide the best way to stop this is they occupy the tote. They break in, they raid it, no one's there, and they squat there for nine weeks from the <laughs> of the 1903 Melbourne Cup thinking they can't open it if we never if we, leave. If we never leave. Right? Wren goes to court and gets them kicked out under the law as trespassers. <laughs> The police get kicked out of trespassers. Call the cabs. The cops have got to go. At this point, the police basically give up. 
So the VRC, the Victorian Racing Committee, which is the big, owns Flemington Race Course, which is the big race. Still track, to this day. Still to this day, runs the Melbourne Cup and the um, the Spring Racing Carnival in Australia, which is, if you're not from Australia, you know, it's 100,000 people on track for four days. Huge yeah. interest. The Melbourne Cup's called the race that stops the nation. It's a public holiday in Correct. Melbourne. It's the only place in the world where a horse race is literally a in, public holiday. In a city that's famous for sporting events, it's possibly the most famous. It's, and, it's amazing. And, and the carnival, the spring carnival is just... It, it's huge. So, so they're, they're... Bucket list stuff. They still hate him because they can't operate a, to- a totalizer. Yes. He can. He's taking all their money. People aren't going to the course because they can just bet with him. <laughs> he just keeps benefiting from this. They get together in 1905. This is after a couple of years after the raids have died down yes. a bit because they've all just given up on it. And they decide that what they will do is Ren owns a lot of really good top racehorses because he's making so much money. Yes. He's, he's got a house over in Turak. He's got horses. He's I got love this guy. building. He's got business, legit businesses. He's owning boxing halls and, you know, he just owns everything. And he just keeps putting his money into things. They decide, well, one way we can get to him is we will ban his horses from the Caulfield Cup and the Spring Carnival. Crikey. We'll just outrage it. Do they need grounds for this or can they just no, say? They, they don't even give a reason why. They just say he's banned. And straight away there's, this is a massive public scandal because he's wow. so popular with the working class. The man of the people. The man of the people. It divides over class and religious lines. So the working class, Catholics, Catholics. and the Catholic Church itself all get behind Wren and say this is outrageous. <laughs> so you've got the Catholic Church in sermons like on a Sunday, civil war. on Sunday standing up instead of, I was going to talk to you about Jesus, but <laughs> John Wren's horses have been banned. I want to talk to you about how yeah. outrageous. The Protestant churches, the anti-gambling forces and the government of the day and the ruling class, they hate him and they're all against him too. So this yeah. becomes, this. it's the biggest issue going on at the time. The clubs refuse to answer when the media asks them, why have you banned it? Wren decides, well, what I'll do is I'll lease my horses to a trainer <laughs> called Frank Musgrave for the spring. So he's just always like, I'll just Christ. go around this. They instantly ban Musgrave, that Musgrave as well. <laughs> um, it gets more heated. It starts getting brought up in Parliament. So this becomes a debate does. in Parliament where they're all going nuts about it. The Protestant church view all gambling as a surefire way to go to hell. <laughs> Right, so that's their view of it as well. The Catholic Church, which is much more working Slightly class, more lenient. Yeah, they say only excessive gambling is a problem. There you go. So, you know, they're a bit more thing. Yeah, gamble um, responsibly. That was the first gamble responsibly message. Yeah, yeah, that's right, gamble responsibly. The Argos comes out, the newspapers, and they write things saying we must know why, and there's a rule that says that the VRC, they don't have to give a reason in their laws, bylaws. Right. They don't have to give a reason, so they just don't. Wren is looking at this and he's using all these connections with the Catholic Church and the labour movement that's emerging mm. to become the second biggest political force in the country. Wren becomes the cause celebrity of like, how do we <laughs> deal with this? So they all start Because they've got it. the same constituents really, don't they? It's the working class. Working it's class. It. So they're like, these are for us. So you've got all that happening. It's been brought up in parliament, but they're really getting nowhere. The VIC refused to say why, but it comes out 10 months later in a bill to the then Premier, that the VRC committee man, he wrote to the Premier and said, in caps, 
which which even <laughs> the days before social media was still like screaming. Yeah. He said, the decision of the VSA was not a personal one against Mr. Wren. His entries were refused because Mr. Wren was alleged to be the owner of a tote in Collingwood and it was looked upon as an evil influence in racing. Cards on the table. Now, Wren's always moving ahead of that. He's set up a thing in the city called the City Tats Club, which mimics the establishment member only clubs but for the working class where they can come and bet. So this is him franchising. So he starts to set up these and they all start to try and shut those down too. But he says, well, if you're shutting mine down, you've got to shut down the rich people's ones. And they're all going, uh. So once again, he's trapped them all in this. This guy's a genius. He's just playing them all. So they're all, so this is happening. This is making them even more worried. And they're wary of making a move on him because they think, well, if we do that, we could be in court and have to shut all these rich people. All the other ones. Which all the rich people are going, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. So that's all happening in the background to this and it's becoming a huge thing. And they are pouring huge amounts of money. Ren's buying all the ads in the papers to promote these clubs and because these are legal (laughs) unlike the tote. But he's got all the money from the tote still coming in with like fire hose of cash. So he's owning the papers because he's just pouring all his money into it and it's becoming more and more ridiculous as this is all happening. Because the VRC don't budge and they ban his horses from racing, a normal person would get angry and furious. Yes. Ren doesn't think, well, I'll just be angry about this. He thinks, well, how can I destroy you? (laughs) (laughs) I like his outlook. I like his approach. Yeah. So he decides to look into something called pony racing. Now, these aren't actual ponies, <laughs> although it would be much better if they were. There was a, a few examples of this that had already started, which is where... Pony racing. They called it the ponies of pony racing, and it's horse racing, but instead of thoroughbreds, you're using horses that are about 14.2 hands is the top limit. So that's about 1.44 metres high for not... So they're smaller than thoroughbred right. horses. They're not quite ponies, but they're just smaller horses. Don't, you know, they're not as well bred and everything, but they're quite popular. And there'd been major racing clubs formed around this. And the established clubs like the VRC, they didn't like them because they're run by committees of rich guys who don't need to get rich. Yes. And all the money made by the clubs goes back into the club. Right. These pony races are called proprietary racing, which is where a company is set up by someone and all the money made on the racetrack goes, goes to the owner. It doesn't go back to the racing or the rate of the wow. government or a pool. And uh, Croxton Park in Northcote had one in 1869, which was the first, and they were always close to poor suburbs. They were aimed at the working man and a heavy focus just on the gambling. So you got to remember back in these days, racing clubs argued that by breeding horses well, you were helping the bloodstock by better genes a bloodstock in the country for the military of horses, which was still being used a lot, that became less and less important as cars came along. But at the time, it was yes. seen as a legitimate national security okay. issue, right? So they would argue where the ponies were just like, no, we're just racing whatever horse we can get That's our hands on. It's just pure entertainment. Like where there might be eight horse races in a day at the thoroughbred clubs, there might be 20 mm. so you could bet more and the bets would be lower. Anything for the Shetlands? Why have the Shetlands uh, never been that, raced? That, that, that's what Mr. I think Find is where me. they... Well, occasionally they put some kids on the Shetlands. Don't tell me that's what John Wren's going to do next. <laughs> yeah, right. They put kids on Shetlands, did yeah, you say? Yeah, sometimes if you go to the races, they'll have a joke race and it'll be kids on Shetland ponies. It's great until the uh, screen gets pulled up. I'd like to see that. Yeah, no, it's well worth it. They used to have, we can find the photos yes. of this, Monkeys, monkeys on the back of greyhounds. And that was happened during the war, did yeah. it not? Because all the horses uh, yeah, so that's were what otherwise they do. put... And Australians still bet on them. And do you know why they stopped it? 
Because the monkeys used to get competitive and attack each other while on the greyhounds. Why is that not just a demonstration race before the Melbourne Cup? It's Let's just have so much better. Monkeys on greyhounds. Yeah, it's what exactly what wrong? you want. But the monkeys dressed as humans. You know, they sometimes dress them up or no, give they them had the cigarettes. Silks on like a jockey. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Are they smoking like the ones in the posters? No, I don't know if they did, but I'd love that. We're a chimp with a nappy. We're just wearing the nappy, riding a greyhound. The RSPCA would be all over this in two seconds. Eating a banana? Chill joys. (laughs) (laughs) So Ren decides, well, if I'm being shut out of traditional, I'm still going to take the bets through my clubs and through the tote, but I'm going to set up. I'm going to try my and bankrupt them. So I'll set up my – it's a bit like with Kerry Packer did with World Series World cricket. Series Greg cricket. Norman and the Saudis are doing Do with golf with, now. Yeah. It's like if you can't join them – I've got them. a rebel competition. Yeah, so he sets up – And we, what were the impediments to that? Is there like none any, the start, no legal? No, at the start, within four months of his horses being banned, he buys three race courses. This is how much money he's got. Ascot, Richmond and Fitzroy, Good which Lord. are now all mainly housing, housing estates, estates. But at the time, they were in a city – so he's shut down from that. He opens up that. And this is where I don't think he's really a true criminal, right? He pours a huge amount of money to reinvigorate and organise the pony racing and make it fair and easy for people to bet, but with yeah. a, with confidence that it's not a dodgy place to go. Um, many of the pony courses had been run really badly, terrible facilities, no prize money, and the criminal elements ran it. He chases off the criminal elements, which suggests he had his own criminal he elements may to have do had a bit that. of muscle behind it. bit of muscle behind it. He starts investing, so he spends. This is just the mind-boggling amount of money he had: twenty-four thousand pounds on just improving the Richmond race course. He lifted the prize money for the owners. He lowered admission fees. He offered cheap horse cab rides to the course. He let ladies. <laughs> I like in. him in handy for the cops if they need <laughs> to raid right, him. Cops could, he he let ladies in for less than half price, and of course got rid of all the criminals. And the VRC look on in horror because suddenly. Pony racing, which had been this dodgy sideshow, because they'd annoyed Red, it's suddenly like this legit, easier to get to, cheaper, bigger prize money. Family day, bring the girls. Bring the girls, get in, get in the cab, <laughs> half price. I'll take you there, I'll look after you, <laughs> yeah. I'll put on the show. <laughs> what more could you want? But my main motivation is to screw the top end of That's town. That's screwing something. These take off, though. Suddenly the crowds are coming to this in droves and it's skimming money off Flemington and all the other horses. In my mind, races. I'm just seeing the VRC is just a room full of Monty Boonses <laughs> yeah, just sitting around planning their next... Yeah, yeah. They're just in shock, right, because suddenly... The Premier Tony Bend in 1906, who hates Wren, still has to concede when asked by the media. He says, to do him justice, he has done much to purify pony racing and eliminate some of the disreputable things that have been associated with in the past. So you've even got the Premier going, Round he's done applause. a pretty good job. And so Wren is just absolutely, he's already an excellent promoter of cycling boxing and gambling. He's got the best wagering business yeah. in Australia. And they've taken him on and he has just ran them a mile away. Yeah. And then he announces the prize money will go up on all his races. So at Ascot, it goes to £3,000, which considering only the Melbourne Cup had 6000 So he's like for just a normal race. So he's pouring huge amounts. They're spitting in their port, the VRC. <laughs> they can't believe that this has gone to this way and it's just absolutely killing their business to the point where Ren then starts buying all the – proprietary racetracks, the pony races up in Queensland. He buys Albion Park, uh, Dagon Course at Sandgate, uh, Bandama Course at Ipswich, 
and he all registers under the Queensland turf rules up there and is loud and he grows it to the point where he also, uh, he owns every race course in Queensland except Eagle Farm by the early 1920s. Which is brilliant. So he's, he's conquering them in Victoria. He's taken on Queensland. He's got all of He this. knows his crowd well, doesn't he? He just he knows, knows what to do. He's a very slick operator, yeah. you know. The establishment decide we have to shut down the pony yes. races. Ren, we started with the tote, we poked the bear, and we're in a much worse situation <laughs> than we were when we started. So it's just getting worse, right? So what okay. do they do? They decide, one, that the money being sucked out of their pockets going into this is so big that Ramwick and Flemington are really starting to struggle. On the ropes. The other thing is they see their right as these clubs, it's a birthright to oversee racing. Like this upstart, yeah. they cannot believe. So they say things like, it's the sport of kings. It's, you know, it's the not sport the of sport kings. of unemployed trench diggers. <laughs> <laughs> That's their, yeah. their view. And they also say he's not putting money back into the industry. It's going to him as, as a yeah, profit, yeah. right? That sounds like a furphy. Well, but that's what they're saying. Adrian Knox, who was the chairman of the Australian Jockey Club, he said it is his avowed object to suppress pony racing and he described the horses as useless brutes and the punters as loafing men. Okay. <laughs> There's a bit of an attitude problem here. He was a powerful man. He goes on to be the Chief Justice of Australia from 1990 to 1930. Okay. So these are the powerful yeah. people that are saying to Ren, we want to do you in, yeah. basically. You've made a very powerful enemy. Very powerful. But they're so well run that they can't get him, right? Because he's he's made them better. Yes. People like them. It's popular. They don't know how to actually stop it. This is where it gets in real trouble. So they start having inquiries into it and trying to shut it down. And really what actually happens is something falls into their lap. All the anti-gambling forces in Australia have basically gathered and focused on this one man, John Wren. And all of a sudden, not at one of his courses, but in Flemington, in 1906, the 14th of July, a bookmaker named Donald McLeod, he turns up and he intends to take action only on the main race of that day at Flemington, right. which was the Grand National Steeplechase. But the punters say to him, we're desperate to bet on a horse named Lady Doris in the first race. McLeod thinks they're nuts, like Lady Doris is not going to win. So he takes all their bets. Lady Doris wins. And it's the first race and McLeod realises, I don't have the money to pay these people out. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. This right. is the difference between the tote, right? He's used his own money is against fat? them and lost. <laughs> well, <laughs> Can they catch him? Yeah, well, they can. McLeod, and it's race one. Yeah. It's very hard to lose. McLeod sells those that have won money that would settle later, which is a practice called scaling, which is where you basically push them off until you win your money back, back and then buy them out. You buy buying time. Yeah, he buys time. So he tries to get back out in front by taking bets on the next race. Remember, Ooh. he came only ready to bet on the last race. He loses more money, so he scales again. And they're less than happy. They start to get angry. This doesn't go his way the next one either. So he's three races in, he's in a huge amount of things. The crowd turns on him. He tries <laughs> to black away, but the mob surrounds him and start to hit him. Several members of the crowd try to intervene and say, give him fair play. Is a human's life not worth a few shillings? By the time police arrive, McLeod's on the ground and he's been beaten to death. So just wow. a huge, this is at the Flemington race course. This is like a seismic issue in Australia. This is this moment where okay. it suddenly is like this becomes the cause celebrity. This becomes, this is what men like Wren are doing, even though it's not his race course. It's a Flemington. It's at Flemington it, and it's, it's booked. top end of town of running right. this. But that doesn't mean that they want to actually think. So this is like a matchstick thrown into sort of bone dry um, bush here because Wren's tote 
the banning of his horses, his ability to get around it with the pony racing, all this. Gambling's already a massively contentious yes. issue. And then you suddenly have the death of someone involved in it and seen because of like gambling drives men to the evil worse. The Metropolitan School Board's union conference, for example, they submitted to the education minister a resolution that declared that the gambling evil was eating out the vitals of the nation. So it's a calm debate. Victoria. Steady on. Yeah. So now in Victoria, Ren, who's this folk hero, the anti-gambling sides then start to attack him. There's a guy called uh, Reverend William Judkins. He arrives in Melbourne in 1902 and he preaches all over Melbourne and his sermons are real fire and brimstone stuff, right? At one stage, he's pelted with eggs because he just stirs people up so much. You're Protestant. Uh, Yes. And he says, he tells reporters, it was a very small thing to suffer in the cause of righteousness. 10,000 blows like that will not stop me. So he's kind of this full-on guy. He's appointed the editor of the Review of Reviews and he uses this to attack all the social ills and evils in society, which he thinks are... Sounds like a fun guy. Oh, well, you'll love him because this is exactly... Listen to this. This is his list of the top oh, evils. Should I be writing society. these down? <laughs> Prize fighting, oh, gambling, yeah. racing, drinking, dancing, and barmaids. <laughs> <laughs> I am opposed to him on all of the above. <laughs> to say. So he hates barmaids. He has a real thing. He writes a lot of articles about barmaids being evil. Which I could not. That's my ideal woman. Exactly. Someone who can serve me drinks. Barmaids are more attractive than civilians. You know that. Than anyone. anyone. In my eyes. And you should always tip them and be polite towards them, I always say. I I believe too. Wren represents all the things that Judkins hates. He's Catholic when Judkins is Protestant. He calls Wren a Vesuvius of carnality, greed and animalism. Jesus so the funny bit is Wren and Judkins look very similar to each other and people always mistake Judkins for Wren and come up and wish him well. <laughs> oh, it's a great story, like twins separated at exactly. birth or something. So he attacks Wren at every opportunity and he accuses him of criminal connections, undue influence over the government and running illegal betting operations, which the criminal connections are probably the only one you could say are to- not as true as the others. He did have a lot of influence through yes. the Labor Party and the Catholic Church. And he was rich, he had a lot of power, and he did run an illegal betting organisation. He would argue because the rules were stacked against poor against people. Against poor people. There's another um, Methodist minister, Henry Worrell, who shows up at this time too. He'd been working in Fiji and he had a deep hatred for Catholicism. In 1899, he'd been transferred to Tasmania after his missionary work and he said it was like putting a dreadnought battleship in a duck pond. So he thinks he's amazing. (laughs) He rails against all sorts of things and he gets named uh, in both the Bulletin and the Truth newspaper as Wowser Worrell or Warrior, they call him. (laughs) They all just bag him because he's against everything. So Judkins and Worrell, they get in a bit of a competition of trying to take Ren down with each other but they both want the credit and then you suddenly have this death of McLeod, the bookmaker, that gives them the perfect opportunity to really ramp this up. I'm flabbergasted by this because it happens under the auspices of the VRC. I would have thought, yeah. Ren would come out and go, oh, and no, I'm the bad guy. Have a look at what these guys yeah, are these running. Guys are doing come to the ponies. Yeah, but they don't care about that. They just say they're attacking the big clubs too, but the big clubs are a bit more you know, politically covered. Protestants. And they're Protestants. So on the day after the death of McLeod, Judkins rises at uh, his church to deliver a sermon. He denounces the evil of gambling and the government's inaction. 
He says, there is a body lying in the morgue today with face all red and blue and purple, murdered all because of this evil. Who did it? The gamblers did it. So it's that sort of yeah. language. Worrell t- uh, also responds. He does a sermon in Bendigo. He, he calls the sermon, who slaughtered the body and murdered the soul of Donald McLeod? <laughs> so they're very... That sounds like a fun day out at the church. Yeah. He says that there are men sitting in our Houses of Parliament on whose hands blood will rest. It is a nonsense to pretend to be powerless to stop the scourge of gambling. So he says there's blood in your hands for the right. government. He then attacks the racing minister and the attorney general and they get very annoyed with this. And they and Thomas Bent, the premier, oh, says dear. these sermons are so outrageous. He demands Worrell appear before parliament to be censured. There you go. Which, now, do you think this is going to calm the situation? <laughs> Worrell thinks this is my chance Bingo. to be a great Christian martyr. I can rock up to Parliament and fight yeah. my cause, and if I get censored, it will be censured. Either way, I'll um, be a hero, right? So he leaves Bendigo, and in Melbourne, two thousand people show up at the exhibition buildings, and a further ten thousand supporters along the route to Parliament, singing hymns, prayers, chants, and cheering him. He enters, gives his grand performance, and the Parliament just say, "This is all ridiculous," and they just say. They give him a light telling off and it sort of fizzes out. Go back to Bendigo. Yeah. But it, this has really uh, ramped this up. There's trouble brewing here, isn't it? Yeah. I, I can sense we've reached a critical mass of... Judkin says, here's a petition calling for the prohibition of all betting except on race courses. And this becomes a bill which is called the Lottery Gaming and Betting It happened Act. on a race course. The guy <laughs> got pummeled to death. It was on a race course. Yeah. This becomes... A thing that basically says all betting in Australia, and it, it ends up being law in every state in Australia, that you can only bet legally on the racetrack, and that's it. All other betting is banned but on bookie, any other sport. Bookies or tote? Bookies only on the racetrack. So this was in place up until sort of the TABs arrive in uh, Australia in sort of the 60s, 70s. So this was a big law. Like we've, it was completely banned on the back of this and all because of this stuff. Ren, though, has some tricks. He tries to stop the laws getting through the parliament. He's got his people trying to block it and stop it. But none of this really gets through. And eventually this gets through and gambling is banned everywhere. And finally, after all this, it gets to the point where Ren shuts down most of these things because he's made so much money, it's it's not becoming worth the hassle in yeah. Victoria anymore. And this is the high point of the anti-gambling yes. lobbies thing. They have this all shut down. The 20 see the decline in proprietary racing because the gambling, you have to go there, it's so much harder, yeah. and just constant attacks all the time. Mooney Valley, which is a race course in uh, Melbourne, it reads the mood of the room and it moves to becoming a – proper club like Flemington, Flemington and Caulfield and it's still with us. Cox the, Plate. Yep, all the ponies there. get shut down. Now, Wren therefore quickly sells in 1919, reading the writing he on the wall, he sells all his courses to the Victorian Trotting and Racing Association and he's out. In Queensland, a Royal Commission was convened to look into the proprietary racing and basically Wren up there because he owns them all. Yeah. He sells his Brisbane Amateur Turf Club and his Kedron Park Amateur Racing Club and he sells them off, but it turns out he's just sold them to mates and he still runs them. <laughs> so they look into this. Only in Queensland. Yeah. He did legitimately sell them. He did legitimately in Victoria, yeah. but in Queensland he doesn't. Eventually they shut these all down. In 932, Fitzroy, Sandown, Aspendale, Richmond Racecourses are all shut down. The Victorian Parliament finally passed a law shutting them all down. 
Ren, though, is out of the racing game now. Yes. And he didn't really suffer too much because he'd been out manoeuvring governments and the racing clubs for, you know, the better part of sort of 30 years yes. at this point. He decided he'd diversified all his interests. So he'd now controlled all boxing in Australia. He constructed the Melbourne Athenaeum Theatre. He purchased several large grazing properties. He speculated in property development in Sydney and Melbourne. He partnered with Edward Theodore, Patrick Cody and Sir Frank Packer in three lucrative Fiji gold mines. He owned the Great Boulder Mine in uh, Western Australia, the Golden Plateau Mine in Queensland, a coal mine in Newcastle, the Roma Oil Fields and the Watu um, Goldfields in New Guinea. He owned a restaurant in Melbourne, a frock shop in Sydney <laughs> and a cosmetics franchise. This is uh, what he put all his former horses into, <laughs> tested them on his. This is incredible. Are you going to tell me this is a happy ending? No, well, then, Ren, um, there's the book put out Power Without Glory by Frank Hardy that attacks Ren. And he hated communists and he thought ca- anyone who was Catholic and Labor was a communist. So he, he attacks Ren in this book called Power Without Glory, which is a fictional name. Um, and but it's all based very much on John Ren. And it involves in getting going to court and there's liable cases and everything. That book has done a lot, but he was an avowed hater of yes. Ren and everything he stood by. So there's a lot in that that paints Ren as an absolute mafia boss. Yes. Where I think Ren was a lot cleverer, a lot smarter, a lot more of a business legitimate person, than a lot that. more legitimate, and had some very legitimate reasons of doing what he did, such as the sort of the hatred between Catholics and Protestants and the working class yeah. being absolutely screwed. Wren uh, lives until the 26th of September 1953. His other great love was the Collingwood Football Club, which we mentioned at the start, the biggest now I don't like club. Him. I liked him up until Well, now. he funded basically the Collingwood Football Club for years. Well, he can just – he can rot in hell. You're about <laughs> yeah, to get like a te- sermon. It's like funding a terrorism organisation. Yeah, it attacks the vitals <laughs> of this country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was while watching Collingwood break a 17-year premiership drought on the 26th of September 1953 that – both he and his close friend, Collingwood coaching legend Jock Mahale, who's sort of, yes. you know, think the Alex Ferguson of, yeah, of yes. football, they both had heart attacks on the day watching that. They're close mates. Related to the game? Watch, or, while watching the game. It was breaking the 17-year drought, winning the premiership, winning the grand final. They both had a heart attack. Jock Mahale's was on the day. John Wren's was the next day. And Mikhail passes away a week later. Ren dies a month later on the 27th of October. Now, upon Ren's death, his estate was valued at over £1 million, huge amount of money in the day. Yes. It took two and a half years to settle his affairs as his businesses were spread over 31 companies, most using the name of an associate rather than Ren's own. He's a genius. And that is John Red. It is a fantastic story. I do love it. That's a very Australian story too, by the way. Yeah. Um, what a time to be living. Amazing. I don't like the church much. <laughs> I don't like campaigners for anti-vice. And can we just say, who campaigns against barmaids, really? That's been the big takeaway. I'm <laughs> quite shocked. I need a lighter. Thank you again, Titus. If you love listening to Mick and myself bang on all the time, and why wouldn't you, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, and if you're interested in signing up, just simply go to the link in our show notes.